Welcome back to Gastropod, the podcast where we look at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. You're listening to one of our bites. It's a little shorter than our full-length episodes. We'll be chatting about what we think is fascinating in the news these days, at least when it comes to the science and history of food. So this week, you'll be hearing about the week I spent living on nothing but a pale beige drink called Soylent. Oh, lovely. And you'll also learn about one guy who spent the past 30 years cataloging the thousands of varieties of apples that once grew all around the U.S. Stay tuned. So, Nikki, first we're going to talk about the story you wrote for Eon Magazine called Freedom from Food. But before we get into it, I want to set the scene for our listeners. So it was June of this past year. We had just decided to start what would become Gastropod only a few weeks earlier. And it was our first chance to work together for an entire week. And as our listeners already know, you and I are both obsessed with food. Mm -hmm. But I came down to spend the week working with you and you were eating absolutely nothing but this weird powder and oil mix that you blended up called Soylent, no food, all week. That's all you were eating and you couldn't eat with me. And which didn't stop you. You were still going to the hot new ramen place and picking up really good looking sandwiches. And I mean, I live in this mecca of deliciousness known as Carol Gardens. So it was it was rough. And, you know, we did actually even manage to get a lot of shit done, which is, is pretty amazing. Um, but uh, let, let's get into what it was. Can you tell our listeners what Soylent is and why you are eating it? Okay, so Soylent is not people. You probably already know that. but Not just, people. <laughs> just to clarify, um, I was supposed to be living off it for a week for an article for Eon Magazine. And so they sent me a week's supply. And you get this pouch full of powder you get a sort of travel-sized shampoo bottle full of oil, like a fish oil complex, and you get sent a plastic, big plastic jug. And you dump the powder in, you dump the oil in, you fill it up to the top with water, you give it a good shake, and you sit it in the refrigerator. The refrigerator is key because it's supposed to sort of make it taste better. What it actually does is what cold always does, which is take the taste away. <laughs> So, Maybe that's a good thing in this which case. Which is a good thing in this case. Um, the only problem is, of course, it separates. So you mix it the night before, um, and you get up in the morning ready for breakfast, and it is just this revolting, like a, almost like a sourdough starter kind of bubbly foam layer on top. <laughs> Sounds so With annoying. an oil, oil layer beneath it, and then a powder layer beneath that. So you give it another shake and uh, drink it. And the thing is, I mean, you know, I think it's probably clear to everybody that I am not the target market for this uh, drink. I don't even, I like food. I don't even already like those like protein bars and shakes and things like that. I mean, I think they're revolting. Why have that when you could have food? But so let's set this up. Who is the target market? What is this product for? Right, right. Like, why do we need this? We have food already. <laughs> exactly. I'd rather eat food, too. So it's created by a 20-something techie. Of course. He was working in Silicon Valley, a guy called Rob Reinhardt. And he's, you know, a coder. And he found that the time he was spending on shopping for food and preparing food and eating food and cleaning up after food, it was time that he felt was taking away from the time he had to work. It was unproductive time. And what's more, he felt like he wasn't doing that great a job of nourishing himself in the first place. You know, he was like a typical 
busy guy, coder, like pizza, Pop-Tarts, whatever, you know, instant ramen. So he was like, what if I could just save that time? And uh, the U.S. Census Bureau estimates we spend 90 minutes a day on food in, in various forms, like shopping, preparing, etc. And he was like, I want that 90 minutes. Uh, so he came up with a prototype in December 2012. He lived on it for a month. In February 2013, he wrote this post. I feel like the $6 million man. It's amazing, etc. And it went viral. And so he started a company and started shipping in May of this year. And I think that the target audience is, yeah, people who really believe, and there are these people that food is a waste of time. They don't get an enormous amount of pleasure from it. Maybe they're anxious about, are they eating right anyway? So Soylent is the solution. So what does Soylent taste like? I mean, it didn't sound like you were a huge fan of the taste, <laughs> but but what is it? I, I tasted it with you once briefly, and to be honest, I've kind of put it out of my mind. Yeah, that's the, that's the best thing to do. I mean, it's a very synthetic-y sweet vanilla flavor. Again, I think there's probably a market for that. It's not me. Um, sort of, to me, it tastes like a sort of a melted down scented candle of some sort, you know, really just sort of sickly. And um, and then the worst thing is the texture because it's really gritty, like bottom of a stream bed gritty. So I actually, I went to my local deli and just grabbed a bunch of straws and drank it through a straw, which really helped. But um, but yeah, not a pleasant experience. But it is interesting, this idea of saving time. I mean, as as much as you and I might enjoy cooking or or kind of throwing foods together, even fairly quickly. To me, cooking doesn't actually necessarily take that long. But there is a real important history of convenience foods and how that's helped women in the workplace and things like that. Oh, totally. And so, I mean, it is true. I actually felt as though I had more time. Um, what was weird was that it didn't feel like useful time. Like I was so sort of like depressed and bored and hungry that like, I mean, I, just to show how bad it got I watched my first ever cat video that week so <laughs> but yeah but I think you know maybe a more disciplined person or a person for whom food wasn't a great thing in the first place you do get extra time and that what you're saying Cynthia about this whole idea of sort of women in the workplace I mean that is the interesting thing about Soylent is this is actually you know it markets itself as the future of food but it's actually just the latest evolution in these time-saving promises and they have a very long and interesting history. Uh, at the start of the 20th century, and particularly after the Second World War, that was the rhetoric around convenience foods. We're saving you so much time. The heads of these big, you know, General Mills type companies would say, "We're saving women, you know, five hours a day. We're saving them. They can they can play bridge. They can play canasta. They can join garden club, etc." Of course, what they actually did is go out to work. So the founder is putting forth this idea that Soylent has all of the nutrients, everything you need, the nutrients, the protein, the fat, everything you need in one drink. But I have to admit, I'm a little dubious. I'm a little skeptical about that. It's this idea that we can reverse engineer food, and we've never been able to do that. Yeah, that's the fascinating thing. I mean, that's—and again, this 
Soylent, which seems like this very contemporary futuristic idea, again, has a long history here of people trying to come up with a meal in a pill and trying to reverse engineer food and failing. Um, Warren Belasco, who's a historian who wrote an amazing book about the history of the future of food called Meals to Come, he goes into this in, in depth. And all these times where people have, you know, when we first discovered vitamins, we were like, this is it. We know how to synthesize perfect food, better than food itself. And those have not turned out to be the solution. Oh, no. I mean, because, of course, they turn out to be phytochemicals and they turn out to be, as we now know, you know, probiotics and prebiotics and all of these things that we we really don't actually understand enough about the science. Food is too complicated for us. We don't know how our body relates to it. We don't know which parts of it in which combinations we need to have. Um, So we literally cannot reverse engineer it. It is beyond our science right now. And that was perhaps the most interesting part of the interview, too, is where I asked Rob about his gut microbiome. That was actually, that was one of my favorite parts, you know, towards the end of your piece when you talked to him about that, because I thought that was a really great question. That's so interesting right now in science, looking at the health of our microbiome and what the microbes are doing and how they're contributing to our overall health. And you took it to that level. I thought that was great. I asked him if he had had his gut microbiome sequenced, and he had, after a year of living on 90% soylent. And that was the only time in the entire interview that he was a little, like, just uncomfortable. I mean, he's very passionate about what he's doing and thinks it has enormous potential in the world, et cetera, et cetera. And this was the only time he seemed hesitant. And it's because his results were really weird. And, of course, we don't know what normal is right now. I mean, that that should be said. I mean, microbiome research is in such early stage that... No one has a recipe for the perfect microbiome. But his is different. Different enough for the scientists quantifying it to say, wow, what are you doing? <laughs> That's so, <kinda> weird. <laughs> so it does seem like uh, Soylent might not be nature's perfect food after all. Well, enough about Soylent. If you listeners want to read all about it, we will have a link to Nikki's great article in Eon Magazine. And now it's time to talk about apples, a lot more tasty than Soylent. Yeah, seasonal treat. I am such a huge apple fan. Apple muffins, apple pie, apple crisp. It's all happening in my house. My favorite apple thing, I have to admit, and I want to talk about this in a little bit, is hard cider. I like apples. I do. I really enjoy them, but I love really good, dry, funky apple cider. Yeah, no, I can't go there with you because hard cider was my teenage drink of choice. So (laughs) You have too many bad memories. (laughs) It's associated with vomit in my mind mainly. Sorry. No problem. Well, anyway, let's talk about some of the really interesting articles and books that have been coming out recently. There was an article in the New York Times about somebody named Dan Bussey who just is publishing a, a Tomes, seven tomes, actually. He's been spending 30 years researching all of the varieties of apples that grew in the U.S. It's it's crazy. Everything from 1623 to the year 2000. And he came up with 17,000 apples. 3,000 page encyclopedia this is in total. The Illustrated History of Apples in North America. And it starts coming out in January. Um, There was also slightly more bite-sized, for those of you who uh, don't have time for 3,000 pages, Apples of Uncommon Character by Rowan Jacobson, who's a great writer. James 
Beard Award-winning food writer. His book, which came out in September, just profiles 120 apples, slightly more manageable. <laughs> just a little bit. Also, though, really interesting, a huge variety and all the different kind of shapes and sizes and flavors and, you know, way different than what you can find today in the grocery store. Right. That's the thing. I mean, the New York Times article says, and I mean, we can both verify this from personal experience, there are about a dozen varieties in the store. You know, Granny Smith, Red Delicious, Golden Delicious, Fuji, yeah. Fuji Gala, Honey Crisp, etc. We can name them. And there aren't that much more even when I go to the farmer's market. There are more varieties and they're more interesting and they have a, a greater variety of appearance and flavor. And, and I love that. But it's nothing like that 17,000 or even, he says, there are about 5,000 that are still being grown. I mean, what's so amazing is these 5,000 still being grown, but so many that have been lost. If, if you think there are 17,000 in his book and 5,000 of those are still being grown... That is a tragedy. And they're, they've gone because the the red delicious, which I hate. It's my... I hate it. It's a enemy of all apples. It's mealy and taste-free. And yeah, it's bad. And mushy and sweet. And, and they were, I mean, they were bred for their color and their shape and the fact that they could be stored and transported and all that and, and absolutely nothing to do with how they taste. I think that's why a lot of kids grow up not liking apples because that's what they, that's what I ate in school when I was growing up and it's gross. I know. That's the part of your lunchbox you throw out. It's disgusting. Ah, absolutely. You know, I, one of the things I did love in the article about his book is that he was going and doing all this research and trying to find anything he could. And a lot of the illustrations with these 17,000 varieties of apples, this is the first time they're being published. And he found them because they're images that were created by artists at the U.S. Department of Agriculture a century ago. I just thought that was the coolest job that they employed artists to create the images of these fruit. You know what? We tweeted a really interesting article about this in the Smithsonian from at Gastropodcast the other week because what these illustrations, it wasn't just like the USDA being like, let's have some lovely pictures. This was the only method of, you know, intellectual property protection before the Plant Patent Act was introduced in 1930. So mm -hmm. these images actually had a very real purpose. People who had bred new apple varieties and wanted to profit from them, we, they would register their apple variety with the USDA and the USDA Department of Pomological artists would draw a picture of it. Well, and also what I think is interesting, kind of along the same lines, is, is those were done for this scientific reason. But now they can be used, this volume, this encyclopedia that he's created, it can be used by growers to say, well, I have this apple, this random you know, apple tree that's growing, and I have no idea what it is. And they can go and look at these drawings that were made and the descriptions and try to actually name kind of lost varieties that are at orchards all over the country. Yeah, that's what I love is this idea of sort of fruit detectives um, using these illustrations to sort of try and identify some of the old apples. I mean, apples can be 150, apples can be even 300 years old, still producing fruit, and no mm -hmm. one knows what variety they are anymore. But with some of these illustrations, they might be able to figure it out. So, you know, you were talking about these, these fruit detectives, and that actually brings me to, I know you don't like cider, but I love <laughs> cider. And it's totally different these days than that really kind of sickly sweet stuff that used to be popular in the U.S. It tasted like apple juice but happened to be alcoholic. Oh, yeah. Now it, it tastes more like beer or wine. I mean, it's just it's really interesting. But the problem is that we don't have cider apples anymore. They mostly disappeared with prohibition because they couldn't even make non-alcoholic cider after prohibition, probably because it would have seemed like it could have been alcoholic. And so 
all of the cider apples, they had to have a lot of sugar so that they could be fermented, but they also had to be kind of bitter and tannic. And cider was the national drink here in the colonies. So cider is becoming so popular these days, and it's growing exponentially. I mean, it just the, the variety and the different kinds people are making, but they actually often have to go to Europe or elsewhere to get the apples because we just don't have them anymore. So a friend of ours who actually had the fellowship with us in uh, in California, UC Berkeley Food and Farming Fellowship, Lauren Markham wrote an article for Modern Farmer where she profiled these cider, dete- cider apple detectives in Vermont who are trying to plant thousands of cider apple trees. But to do so, they're just scouring the countryside because it used to be kind of the center of, of apple cider production. And they're just showing up in people's, how, you know, climbing over fences and trying to find these randomly growing trees that might still be producing cider apples and taking them back and tasting them. And, and people actually have been welcoming them. It's not like they're kind of sneaking around behind their backs, but they're the, the cider apple detectives. I loved that story. I know. And even though I don't share the cider, maybe I'll get there one day. Maybe I need to try it again. It's been, it's been, well, it's been a while. Has it been long enough? (laughs) It has been a while, I have to say. But I do really just love this idea of these, I'm expanding the monolithic idea of an apple in people's head. People, like when you say apple, people picture such a sort of standard thing. And actually these have, they, you know, they have crazy names and equally crazy colors and shapes, like the yellow bellflower and the blue pearmain and the black Oxford and the Ashmead's kernel. And there's one of them that has like bright, bright red flesh. And apparently it doesn't taste all that different, but it lends a really nice color to cider. I mean, it, there's it, things we can't even really imagine just picking up apples at the supermarket or at the farmer's market. And the descriptions, honestly, are like wine tastings. People are like, oh, it has a note of pineapple. It has a note of champagne. There's some nuttiness sherbet, molasses, like you just, I mean, again, oh God, my mouth is watering. (laughs) I think we're making our listeners hungry. (laughs) And that's it for this episode of Gastropods. Send us your pictures of favorite apples, tasting notes from Soylent experiments. We'd love to hear it all. And in a couple weeks, we will head out with some scientists who are trying to breed new strains of microbes that could vastly improve crop yields. But one major challenge of farming experiments is just the messiness and unpredictability of nature. And experiments can take a really long time. We have this experiment set up in the field now, and we honestly have no idea what's going to happen. 11 months is quite a long time to wait. You'll have to wait to find out what happens yourself. You'll hear all about it in two weeks. Till then.